What's going on, Dodgers Nation? D-Mag here, and today it's a special day because I'm joined by my man, Mr. Eric Sherman, and he wrote this fantastic book about the Los Angeles Dodgers and Fernando Mania. It's a fantastic book. It's called Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Highly recommended, essential reading for Dodger fans. I devoured this thing. Eric Seinfeld has that quote where he says that book was so good. I almost finished reading it. Hey, does not apply to this. Okay. I've knocked out this thing. It's such a fantastic book, but yeah, man, such an exciting book and congratulations. Oh, uh, well, thank you so much for those kind sentiments and for having me on this show. Yeah, no, we're going to get into it because first of all, I would talk to you during spring training and I was like, wait a minute, Eric, did you just hit the lottery? Did you strike gold? The fact that you released this book in the same year that the Dodgers are finally retiring number 34, Fernando Valenzuela's number. I mean, how great is that, that this book comes on this special year? Well, I I have a great story about that. So advanced copies of the book's uh, came out about three months ago. And um, and one of the chapters in the book is entitled Legacy, where I go over, uh, you know, why why in the world hasn't number 34 been retired yet? Um, so I, I gave all the reasons. I interviewed pe- people. And um, so three weeks later, um, after the advanced copies were sent out, I know the Dodgers received a few. The Dodgers make the announcement that they're retiring his number. So you know what? I'm owning it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's definitely a, a big break. And I think that fans are going to be so excited to read it. But I think what makes this book so special is, look, I read all the sports books. I'm a sucker for a sports book. But a lot of times you're halfway through the book and I'm just reading stats that I already know and that kind of stuff. But this book, it tells the story of the Dodgers. It tells the story of Fernando Valenzuela, but also the complicated history of the Dodgers and this city. And that's where I want to start, because that is a topic that definitely a sensitive topic to a lot of Angelinos, a topic that I think people definitely need to know more about. And we'll really start right there with Dodger Stadium. I think uh, one thing I love about your book, too, is the chapter titles. I think David and Goliath, it really resonated with me because you look at economically speaking, Dodger Stadium, it made a lot of sense, right? It created thousands of jobs. You bring in tax revenue. It's a massive attraction. We know O'Malley wanted to model it after Disneyland and try to bring stars in there. But you mentioned in the book, that it was really a situation where, hey, why didn't O'Malley cut bigger checks for some of these people that were basically just taken out from their homes? And when you look at that history there with eminent domain and the city versus the Dodgers, who really is to really blame for that process? Was it a city thing? Did the Dodgers get involved? Or was it really a situation where they say, hey, we're going to use Chavez Ravine to build this baseball cathedral and these people really are going to basically be displaced from their homes? To be fair, I I think it was more a city issue than anything else. Um, So just to give some history, um, through eminent domain, uh, the city wanted to take over uh, the 300 acres of land on Chavez Ravine, uh, which encompassed three Mexican-American neighborhoods, uh, to build affordable housing um, for the greater good. And of course, 
Mexican Americans were more marginalized, um, paid you know, 50, 60 cents on the dollar for the value of their homes. And many of them had lived in Chavez Ravine for two, sometimes three generations. So when the Red Scare came along in the early 50s, um, this project was deemed to be at best socialist and for some politicians, communist. Um, so the project was scrapped. So now the city of Los Angeles was left with 300 acres of property that they really didn't know what to do with. Um, now, the people that remained, the Mexican-American families that remained, felt, well, we're in the clear now. You know, there's no project. We can stay in our homes. But then 2,500 miles east, the Brooklyn Dodgers are looking for a new home. New York City planner Robert Moses was not accommodating, uh, wouldn't help them find uh, a location for a larger stadium or to um, enhance Ebbets Field, which only sat 28,000. So the city lured the Dodgers uh, out to Los Angeles and said, look, I mean, this 300 acres, it's going to be right by a freeway entrance. It's going to be great. Uh, you know, you can have your 56,000 seat uh, stadium and it's just going to be gorgeous. Um, so the Dodgers were lured out there. Um, and um, unfortunately, during the beginning stages of the building of Dod Dodger Stadium, when they were leveling the ground, some of those families that remained were literally, literally dragged from their homes and watched as their homes got bulldozed to the ground um, to make way for Dodger Stadium. So as you can imagine, that visual uh, resonated naturally um, with Mexican-Americans and Latinos, and, and um, it really stuck in their craw. And really until Fernando came along um, with Fernando Mania in 1981, roughly... 5% of Dodger Stadium uh, was comprised of Mexican-Americans and Latinos. It was a very white crowd. Uh, and Fernando, of course, changed all that. And nothing's changed since. 42, two years later, um, 50, 60% of the crowd is Latino and Mexican-American. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the book that, look, I mean, you're talking about eminent domain. They basically forced 1,800 Mexican-American families from three neighborhood sections of Chavez Ravine, La Loma, Palo Verde, and Bishop. And I read through some of those parts that you just mentioned about families seeing their homes bulldozed. They've lived in those homes for four generations. And in just a matter of minutes, their homes are gone. Now, when you look at that history, it's just a lot of bit of a dark history when you look at Dodger Stadium. But Fernando Valenzuela, he comes along and really changes just the entire relationship between the Dodgers and the Hispanic community of Los Angeles. The Jaime Harines mentioned that they were looking for a Mexican Sandy Koufax to try to repair that relationship. You mentioned less than 5% of the fans at Dodgers Stadium were Hispanic. Now that number is really at over 50%. I mean, the Dodgers, they like to say, oh, we have you know 50,000 strong every night. Hey, if it wasn't Fernando Valenzuela, could probably be talking about 20, 30, 40,000 without that strong fan base. But yeah, I mean, you're looking back now, I think one thing really sticks out to me was when 
in the book, you're saying that uh, did o- Widow Malley have considered building Dodger Stadium in Beverly Hills or Brentwood? And I think that really kind of put things into perspective. So, yeah, I mean, how big of a role did the Dodgers have in that decision? Or do you think it was just more like a sales job? I mean, we've heard the story of O'Malley being the helicopter, looking down at Chavez Ravine and trying to make L.A. a an attraction. But there was also Wrigley. There was also the other field that had 22,000 seats that you could have played there. Was there another location in Los Angeles that could have made more sense where you didn't have to displace so many families? Well, I I don't think they necessarily would have had to look elsewhere. I just don't know why they needed 300 acres. Um, you know, those families could have remained. Um, you know, three, the Do- Dodger Stadium and the surrounding park, park area parking area did not require 300 acres. That's massive. I believe that was more than 10 times uh, the acreage of, of Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. Um, so, it, you know, pushing the Mexican-American families out, um, I think was a real blemish. And to what you were saying before, you know, I think a lot of this could have been resolved if the Mexican-American families that were forcibly removed if if they would have paid if the city would have paid what those homes were worth or if O'Malley had gone to his own pocket and you know like we're not talking about a lot of families that remained it it, it just would have avoided um a lot of the contentiousness i think and um th- you know i think what it comes down to is the mexican americans just wanted to be treated like like proper citizens and not marginalized and not pushed around by what was perceived to be this big New York corporation coming in and pushing them out. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book that yes, they weren't getting the proper value for their property, basically being offered 30 to 40%, sometimes more or less, but it was a little more than money, right? They want to be treated with respect and just the whole perception of the operation. You got a big Brooklyn Dodgers team that wants to come in LA and just kick these families out. So yeah, it's a very complicated history to say the least, but thankfully... Fernando Valenzuela, he did a lot to really repair that relationship. And we're going to touch on Fernando next because, I mean, you look at Fernando's story and when you read it in your book, of course, I was very familiar with it. But when you laid out the way you did, it's just even more unbelievable. I mean, the youngest of 12 children born on November 1st, 1960 in a mud brick house in Echo, Joaquila, Mexico, a town with no electricity, no running water. They did have that small baseball field. And I want to start right there. Talk about Fernando's humble beginnings and how he got into the sport of baseball. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you talk about that baseball field. Um, it didn't have a backstop. Uh, there were no bleachers. Um, I mean, it was as basic as it could possibly get. And I mean, he really came from nothing, um, which makes his story, you know, made for Hollywood because, um, you know, he, he, he didn't speak any English, uh, when he arrived at, um, at Dodgers camp at age 19, um, you know, was taking, um, English as second language class. And he was, the other thing too, is besides the fact he was extremely shy and, you know, he still is really shy today, despite, uh, having a very public job as the color guy with the Spanish language station, um, y- you know, despite all that, um, he his his shyness was really intense. And 
And I think there were a few people that helped him out tremendously. Um, get over that. Um, Jaime Hureen, certainly one. Um, you know, one of the smart things the Dodgers did was they were ready for what what you refer to as um, the Mexican Sandy Koufax. They had a Spanish language broadcasting team in place as early as 1958. And Jaime Hureen worked as Fernando's interpreter during press conferences for over six years. Now, Fernando probably didn't need an interpreter after three or four years, but his shyness, uh, he really relied on Jaime um, and he was made to order. Uh, you know, he also had uh, Mike, Mike Brito, the scout that signed him. Mike Brito, as your Dodger fans know, was um, was was the man with the radar gun and and the Panama hat and the big cigars uh, behind home plate all those years, just a fixture. Well, Fernando lived with Mike his his first full season in the big leagues, um, you know, just to give him a family environment because he was homesick. Like you said, he came from a big family and now he's in L.A. Um, and of course, there was Tommy Lasorda, um, who never saw a camera he didn't like and absolutely took all the you know that remaining media uh pressure away from fernando um so um you could say that fernando had several father figures um that that, that really made that transition a lot easier from those humble beginnings yeah, and I, I think it's important to point out that in, there was a fractured relationship with the Hispanic community and the Dodgers, but still there were some community outreach attempts. And the fact they did have the games there in Spanish on radio. And you mentioned the book about Jaime Harin talking about having jobs in the winter and that they really didn't make very much money. So they did establish that early on. But kind of going along here with Fernando too, being in that media room myself, that really resonated with me the way he carries himself there because he clearly is, he has that glow to him. You know, he's sitting right there. It's Fernando Valenzuela, but still, you know, you don't, he's a very approachable, like you said, but still sometimes you see him with his AirPods in, it's like, he'll give you answers, but still he's not going to be a guy that, is going to jump out at you and try to bring attention onto himself. And I think that is so interesting considering Fernando man, that Fernando mania and the spotlight that was shined on it, but kind of moving along in his journey to the bigs, I think it's really fascinating, really the next step. So the manager sees Fernando strike out 16 batters in the all-star game. And he selects him to that Sonora all-star game. Then Dodgers scout from Mexico, Carito Verona, he scouted him. And this was, you had, I love how you had his original. I love reading scouting reports and the original one had him saying Fernando was a little wild but not much he was plump but not all over his arms and legs are slim he has a chance to make the major leagues and then of course you mentioned Mike Brito Dodgers legendary scout he gets in the mix LA eventually signs him for $120,000 that was the most they've ever spent on a prospect they really get into a bidding war with the Yankees there now the next question I have for you is when you look at Mike Brito and his involvement with him, just how important was Mike Brito to Fernando Valenzuela and just the entire Fernando Mania phenomenon? Well, extremely. Um, and, and you know, uh, unfortunately, sadly, we just lost Mike Brito not that long ago. And, and Mike was terrific in this interview, in the interviews that I did, did with him. Um, 
you know, just was a father figure uh, all along for Fernando. He followed Fernando, you know, when when he when Fernando would get promoted throughout the minor leagues, uh, Brito followed him, stayed with him, ate with him. Uh, I mean, he was a guardian angel. Uh, to Fernando. I, I mean, there's, uh, there's no way to overstate the influence. And, um, you know, I visited the Dodgers press box. Oh, right. Shortly before Mike passed away. And, uh, and Mike was there, you know, he was in a wheelchair and, and he was visiting with Fer, Fer, Fernando. And, you know, um, he was a constant influence um, for Fernando. Uh, you know, and, until Fernando was 60 years old, uh, he was always there. Uh, I mean, people should hope that they have a father half as supportive as Mike Brito. Um, just um, a, a tremendous figure. And, you know, Mike, Mike Brito, um, aside from Fernando, in the annals of Dodgers history, with the players that, that, he, that he signed, um, it was just remarkable. He, he's easily... Um, the, the, the greatest scout of Mexican pl- players in history. I mean, no one's even close. Yeah, and there's a direct line from Fernando Valenzuela to Julio Urias and all this talent that the Dodgers have extracted from Mexico throughout the years. And it accomplished two things. It got them talented players that helped them win ball games, and two, helped them bring in an entire demographic into Dodgers Stadium. So next question I have for you, too, is how important is it? Was, what was, was it just something that they were trying to accomplish, really two birds with one stone, find great players and Mexican stars? Or was it, hey, let's find a Mexican star that can also be a great player too, but really it's trying to focus on repairing that relationship. In a roaring stadium, their silence is deafening. 136 Israelis are still being held hostage by Hamas. Bring them home. I I think they were looking for that next Mexican Sandy Koufax, and they had been. Um, O'Malley um, and um, you know the Dodger brass they they were always going to Jaime Harin, you know, saying, "Hey, can you find us the next Sandy?" Yeah, you know, like they wanted desperately to heal that relationship with Mexican Americans, and I think it went beyond what occurred with Chavez Ravine. I think it was also. Um, a growing uh, Mexican-American Latino population in Southern California that, you know, it, it would be good for business. Let's call it what it was. And but uh, they were always on the lookout for talent. Um, and, you know, when they signed Fernando, um, he hadn't really developed a screwball yet. Um, so um Castillo, uh, of course, um, he taught Fernando the screwball and um, and uh, that really changed everything. I mean, that took Fernando from being um, a good prospect to a tremendous prospect. 
Yeah, I find that so fascinating. It's just another example how everything had to align. The stars aligned for Fernando Valenzuela to have success. And you talk about in the book how Fernando, he needed another pitch. And Al Campanis, he's talking to Mike Brito. And Mike Brito, he's the one who suggested maybe a curveball or maybe a screwball. And Al Campanis, he says, hey, we don't have anyone that throws a screwball. He's like, wait a second, we do. It's Bobbo, meaning Bobby Castillo, a guy that that Brito had signed to the Dodgers a guy that he had scouted and Fernando he learned that screwball pitch in a week and after that really his career totally changed that's what Mike Brito said he said he was a different pitcher after that we know of course the screwball is a pitch that essentially it's a curveball in reverse as you pointed out in the book but it was such a special screwball because it didn't just do one thing he had three different types of pitches going side to side up and down one that could stay in the zone just talk about how that pitch changed his career career and how really there is no Fernando Valenzuela without that screwball. Absolutely. Um, you know, somebody recommended that someone I really respect uh, recommended that I that I call the book Screwball uh, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it changed everything. It's an it's an extremely difficult pitch to master. Uh, Carl Hubble uh, was really the first pitcher to use it and and he used the screwball all the way to the Hall of Fame and struck out all those American League hitters uh, in the first all-star game and um, but very very few have mastered it and it just elevated Fernando from being a good pitcher to a phenomenal pitcher now, what it also did, um, it affected his career later on. Um, you throw that screwball and enough, the number of innings that Fernando did. I mean, his first six seasons in the big leagues, he made the all-star team six straight years, you know, just like Sandy Koufax did. Um, but it put so much stress on your arm um, that if you are overused, which Fernando was, and, and you may touch on that later um i mean it it will shorten the effective the effectiveness of your career and um and that's probably what happened to fernando later on yeah, no, it's such a fascinating pitch, and you don't see guys use it these days, and it's for that reason, mainly, is because it does take its toll. When you combine the effects of that pitch on your arm, and then the usage of Fernando Valenzuela, we know that Tommy Lasorda did not like to go to his bullpen. It was just a different era of Major League Baseball with guys going deep into games. But yeah, that is what probably led to him having a shorter career, and just really his drop-off after he had such a great start. But yeah, you mentioned Carl Hubble. I love that part in the book where you talk about Christy Mathewson and Warren Spong, guys that use that screwball. And the fact that Hubble even commented on Fernando Valenzuela's screwball, saying that it was the best that he had seen from that pitch since he threw it. So that's very high praise from him. But yeah, when you just look at highlights of it, I think, look, I mean, we have advanced metrics now we have baseball savant that can show us what each pitch is every single time it comes out of the pitcher's arms but still i think as you see the variations of the speed the side to side it's really such a game-changing pitch but now we got to talk about the start of fernando mania and one comment i find very interesting was mark langell and mark langell he talks about how The Dodgers, they didn't go with Fernando Valenzuela in that playoff, that one-game playoff in 1980 against the Houston Astros. Of course, Tommy Lasorda, he goes with Dave Goltz, and then the rest is history. Phil Negro, he pitched 
a phenomenal complete game. The Dodgers lose seven to one. Fernando Valenzuela had basically pitched less than a month. He was 19 years old, but Dusty Baker talks about it in the book, how, Hey, they should have gone Fernando Valenzuela and maybe they win that series. But talk about Mark Langell's comment that had Fernando pitched in that game and maybe the Dodgers win, how you don't have Fernando mania the following year. Yeah. um, I, well, first of all, I have to say that Mark is an incredible baseball mind. Just amazing. There there's, there's nobody that I enjoy talking baseball with more than Mark. He is an encyclopedia. So to your point uh, and to Mark's point, uh, Fernando pitched 17 shutout innings in the fall of 1980. Um, But you know, they, they weren't, well, none of them were starts. You know, he didn't start a game. And a lot of those innings were, you know, they didn't close out games. So, you know, they might be in the, the seventh inning or the eighth inning or extra innings. or uh, But he was basically pretty much perfect. How And, and he did not start that 163rd game against Houston. Uh, and believe me, uh, the players I talked to, Dusty Baker and Rick Monday. I mean, they they all wanted uh, Fernando to start that game, even though it would be his first professional start um, over Galtz, who was, you know, the high prize or high price free agent signing. Um, Lasorda goes with Galtz and, you know, you don't get fired if you're a manager <laughs> going with a free agent pitcher. Uh, but you can get fired. Not that Lasorda would have gotten fired. It's more or less an expression. But a manager could get fired uh, for going with a rookie pitcher, uh, basically pitching his first start in a one-game playoff. Um, so, uh, in a sense, what Mark Langell's point was, it was a great thing for the Dodgers um, in a strange sort of way, it kept him in the witness protection program. So nobody really knew what the Dodgers had until um, he was forced upon the league when Jerry Royce and Bert Hooten, um, you know, their two top top pitchers going into that 81 season uh, were both injured like right before opening day. And their other two pitchers weren't available because they had pitched in the freeway series. Uh, against the Angels. So they had to go with Fernando. And um, Fernando had ice in his veins. You know, I talked about how shy he was in public, but that was anything but the case once he was on that mound. Yeah, I know you definitely get a sense of fearlessness, that competitive fire. He was never afraid of the big moment. But yeah, I think that is such a great point that you made just now in Tommy Lasorda and just adding some context because this is before Lasorda gets his World Series in 1981. It was before he got his another World Series in 1988. Yes, they did make it a back-to-back World Series in 77 and 78, but I think a lot of Dodger fans, you look back on Tommy Lasorda's history, it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows, just like it is now with Dave Roberts. They love Dave Roberts, but they also are the guy that he's the guy they always point to anytime something goes wrong. I mean, they blame Dave Roberts for the sinking of the Titanic and it was the same with Lasorda back in the day. So yeah, I think that's important to point out, but also I love that you point out in the book too was, yeah, he was spectacular 
in his 10 appearances that came in relief when he was 19 there in 1980. But also, if you go all the way back to his minor league numbers, I mean, he was running yeah. a 52 and two thirds scoreless inning streak dating all the way back to San Antonio. And also, too, he did pitch in that game 163, had two scoreless innings. So it was a precursor of things to come. And you talked about opening day in 1981. Just another layer of, okay, one thing broke this way to allow Fernando Mania to happen. Happen. And as you mentioned, Jerry Royce, he was supposed to start. He was a late scratch due to that calf muscle strain. Bert Hooten, for me, I was cringing a little bit when I learned about, of course, that painful ingrown toenail remover removal. He couldn't start. Then, as you mentioned, Bob Welch had the bone spur. And then other two guys, Rick Sutcliffe and Dave Goltz, they had pitched in that freeway series that we see every year, the last two games of spring training. So you turn to 20-year-old Fernando Valenzuela, and he was fantastic five pitch shutout on 106 pitches the Dodgers win two to nothing and then Fernando mania really gets started and if you look at the numbers to start Fernando for start his career with the Dodgers is absolutely mind-blowing I just don't think we're ever going to see this again in Major League Baseball he pitched nine innings in each of his first eight starts he allowed four earned runs he had five shutouts, an 8-0 record, and in his first 89 two-thirds innings of his major league career, he had 51 hits, 22 walks, had 84 strikeouts, and a .4 ERA. Just talk about how he was on the mound, how dominant his career started. Well, I, I mean, like you said, 8-0, uh, five shutouts, 0 0.50 ERA. I mean, we could just call it what it is. It was the greatest start. Uh, to a starter's career in the history of the game and remains so today. Um, but it wasn't just what he was doing on the mound that was so incredible. I mean, he was al almost immediately after that opening day start, the Dodgers were getting um, 15,000 advanced ticket sales, um, you know, for his next start. Um, if Lasorda was going to move him up a day or back a day, I mean, they had to put out a press release to let the fans know because, you know, they're, they're going out of their way to buy these tickets to come see him pitch. So, you know, the, these early April, you know, beginning of May games where they might draw 30,000, I mean, they were selling them out. Um, it, and, and, you know, Fernando Mania, it was organic um, and it really happened instantly. It, it, it happened in that first game. Uh, the fans got caught, caught up in, into it. And, and that's something else that I don't think we'll ever see again. I, I mean, the fervor and the enthusiasm and, 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 and how Dodger Stadium on nights that he pitched pitch transformed into you know regular old dodger stadium to really um a, a mexican festival um with with flags and banners uh, you know mexican flags and banners all over the stadium mariachi bands um you know bands um making their own fernando t-shirts and and makeshift jer jerseys because you know they didn't sell um jerseys like they do now in in those days um you know of course you had um you know that that young lady that that, that that ran on the field and just you know i think when she ran on the field and gave fernando a hug and a kiss i think she personified what you know the fifty-five thousand fans in attendance that night 
all wanted to do. It was like a 55,000 fan kiss and hug to Fernando. And the, the, the mania, the excitement was, uh, was so quick. You know, I, uh, I don't know if, if you'll get into this later, but, um, you know, Fernando was barely a big leaguer for three months and he gets invited to the white house. And I mean, and, and he's the star of the luncheon, you know, everyone, including the president of the United States is asking for his signature. So it was so quick, the mania and, and, and it just spread throughout the country and, and not just Dodger stadium. Um, you know, the night that he went eight, no, the Dodgers were in New York and they were playing a Mets team in 81. That wasn't just a bad baseball team, but they were terribly boring. And and they would draw five to 6,000 fans a night. And even the night, the game before Fernando pitched on a Friday night, a game against the Giants, they only drew about 6,000 fans. Well, the night that Fernando pitched, um, they the announced crowd was 43,000, but that was paid. So there was over 50,000. So Fernando was bringing... Mexican-Americans out of the shadows for the first time, not just at Dodger Stadium, but all over the country, and bringing women out to games uh, for the first time, too. Yeah, I know he was an absolute rock star, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I find that moment fascinating with Norma Echivara, who goes on the field, gives him a kiss. Like you mentioned, she actually did have her own number 34 jersey. And back then, it wasn't like it is today where you just go to millions of stores and get jerseys. I mean, people had to find a way to get those things. And look, if that happens today, we're talking about probably the most viral moment in sports for that year, for someone to come out of the stands and kiss a player like that. And I think, too, it definitely exemplifies just kind of how the fan base and really the entire country was just so enamored with this guy. And I think he had that mystique factor, too. I think that's something about him is the fact that he was a little shy i think that kind of almost endeared him to the fan base as well they just wanted to know more i found it really interesting in the book when it talked about how news reporters would go down to mexico and they wanted to learn everything about this guy when usually it's the other way around right so yeah it was an absolute fascination you mentioned too in new york i mean just visualizing a hundred reporters just cramming into just places and press scrum to try to get anything they can from a guy. It, to me, I just don't think we're going to see anything like that again. I want to ask you too about his delivery. My favorite baseball movie of all time is Bull Durham. And you mentioned <laughs> the scene with Susan Zarandon and Nuke Lelouch and she says to him, have you ever noticed how Fernando Valenzuela doesn't even look when he pitches He's a Mayan Indian or Aztec. I get them confused. Have you ever found out about that delivery where he's looking up to the sky? I mean, where does that come from? I was not able to find that out. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And that that eyes to the sky delivery where he literally would shut his eyes um, and um, and then pick up, you know, Sosha's or Jaeger's glove. And uh, it was just so iconic. And um and was mimicked, of course, on on playgrounds, backyards, little league fields, all over the country, and all, probably all over the world, wherever baseball's played. I mean, I did it in, in my backyard playing wiffle ball. You know, you you, you know, you throw a Fernando in there along with a Louis Tion, and um, it, it was just so iconic. And and to what you were saying a moment ago about his relatability, um, you know, he was not. A physical specimen. Um, he he w- he looked somewhat out of shape. He had kind of a 
strange haircut. But again and again in my interviews, uh, particularly with Mexican-Americans, they would tell me he reminded them of their older brother or, or their uncle. He, there was this everyman way about him and that shyness where uh, it, 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 it was just something they could relate to, like he was one of them. But what it also did was it inspired them. If Fernando can be the very, very best at his profession, looking like one of us, well, then maybe we could be a ball player or maybe we could be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a professional. That to me is the real theme of this book. It's his impact that he had on millions of people, um, not necessarily even baseball fans. Uh, but to what I was saying before about bringing women out to the ballparks, I mean, he had um, you know, Mexican-American Catholic women coming to the ballpark, you know, praying for him, praying for him to do well. He was to the Mexican-Americans what Jackie Robinson was to the African-Americans. In my mind, it's a clear comparison. And I also make the comparison of Fernando to Cesar Chavez. You know, both didn't really enjoy speaking in front of crowds. Um, you know, both weren't these, um, you know, physical specimens that you might expect a leader to be. Uh, but they both inspired and impacted so many people. Um, so Fernando really, um, I mean, he's just a hero to, to, to so many, even if he never thought that or never looked for it. And he still doesn't look for it today. And, and I just hope that if Fernando reads this book, um, that it may enlighten him on the immense impact that he's had on so many. But thanks for watching part one of the impossible rise of Fernando Valenzuela. I want to thank my guest, Eric Sherman. You can pick up his new book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania and the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers, wherever you get your books. Stay tuned for part two. And if you haven't yet, be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell. And if you want to see us post even more Dodgers content, you really want to support the channel, smash that like button. My name is Doug McCain. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DMAC underscore LA. And until next time, think blue, bleed blue, and I'm out. stadium their silence is deafening 136 israelis are still being held hostage by hamas bring them home home. 